Today's conversation is with Greg Martin. We dig into his early background growing up on a healthy diet of bulletin board systems, pirating, IRC, and hacking. This is, by the way, pretty standard fare for how many of us security people got started. We dig into his working with the FBI and Secret Service, helping them find hackers, starting his first business anomaly, the perils of hiring a replacement CEO, and so much more. We also dig into his new company, Go Security, and a very cool security testing tool his team wrote called Reaper. Lastly, we dig a bit into the market and security investing. And now, here is Greg Martin. What are you up to, man? How have you been? Uh, I've been good. I was yeah. actually trying to remember when I first met you, and I th- I think it was around the same time. I met like a couple of guys at the same time, you and Bo Woods and like one or two other guys that I like ended up becoming friends with all at the same time. So yeah. I'm kind of conflating which conference it was. It was like two or three conferences I went to, like bam, bam, bam. We and, definitely uh, met at a cybersecurity conference. Yeah, I just can't remember yeah. which, like an OWASP or something. Not that, but something. Yeah. Maybe an RSA or something. But um, I went and in doing background research, I found some old article written, I don't know, maybe by Forbes or something. I can't okay. remember um, about you. And um, your start with an old IBM clone, like, a, like an 8086 or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, so I figured that might be a fun place to kind of start. Why don't you, uh, <laughs> sure. why don't you give us some, some idea of how your uh, formative years looked? Yeah, my, my journey till now. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's start let's, <laughs> let's start there. Sure. I mean, um, I'm sure my story is not too unusual from uh, a, a lot of people in your peer network, given our uh, commonalities, right? Mm-hmm. So I was a... Uh, a uh, child hacker slash teenage hacker, right? Wannabe hacker. Um, and um, yeah, I think it started, the journey started about eight years old. So uh, wow. I grew up um, kind of what I would say uh, middle to lower middle class, right? Very, um, you know, humble beginnings in a small uh, town outside of uh, uh, Dallas area uh, here in Texas called uh, Waxahachie. Um, you know, now I have a bigger appreciation for it. When I was a kid, I absolutely hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. My dad was, uh, born in England, raised in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Mom was from LA and, uh, you know, somehow I ended up in this really tiny town in the middle of Texas. It was like, you're a cowboy or, you know, so I, I didn't feel like I fit in. And then when I was donated by a family friend, this computer was like, wow, I have something cool. Yeah, I can- like, how did that happen? What they just like is yeah. a gift or something? Or? Yeah, it was like a gift. I think my dad was in real estate. He was trying to break into real estate, just like selling homes and things like that. And one of the guys he works with was like a computer enthusiast. And, um, you know, I think he like felt sorry for us or something. He's like, what, you don't have a computer? And um, he just donated one of his uh, old, old machines. And I had no concept of what was old or what was not. And, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a very like early computer, you know, IBM clone. It had like DOS and basic and things like that and did come with a modem. So I figured that out pretty fast. Yeah, I bet fun. you did. It's <laughs> <laughs> so one of those things where it's, it's like dad's computer and then, you know, eight year old boy, like you just take it over. And all of a sudden, like, I think when it started up, maybe a week later after he brought it home and said, this is Greg's computer. And, <laughs> you know, I'd like changed all the everything, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Defaced it already. Just defacing your own computer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So yeah, I think at that time, you know, um, I want to say I was born in 81. So this must've been like, you know, 
very tail end of the eighties, early nineties, you know, anybody growing up there probably saw some of the similar movies at the time, right? There's Ferris Bueller's day off. There's that what it was war, for war games. I don't know. I think I was probably always a little bit of an edgy kid and I wanted something to dig into. And, um, you know, this whole idea, maybe saw a movie, maybe it was war games. I don't remember to be honest, but, uh, this whole idea of, um, you know, hacking is, looks like a cool thing. So I'm going to try to learn that. And, um, just dove really super deep into the subculture of it from a very early age. Yeah. So how did you do that? Was it purely movies or were you, um, on it, bulletin board systems? Yeah. So you- that good question. So it was basically like learn as much as you can. So it started off because it was kind of pre-internet with, uh, I found out about BBS and I was able to download like essentially text documents that talked about hacking. I, I learned, started learning that way. Then I found out about this, uh, 2600, uh, publication. So I would buy those. And, um, around that time you started to get options to, to get dial up internet. So I was able to get internet and it had very, very, the first internet that I got, you know, typical, it came on discs or I don't know if I had CD ROMs at the time, but, um, it was uh, the very earliest internet. You were either on AOL or you had like some kind of carbon copy version. I had some carbon copy version. I forget the name of it, net something. And um, it had an IRC client built into it. So mm. that was like unlocked. This this whole crazy like world. Yeah. Where, where were you this hanging out like, mostly? Do you remember? Uh, F, I was more of an F net. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all the bad places you can hang out there, you know. I was on F net and under net. So. Okay. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I remember like not doing so hot. I was you know, did well in school, but I just didn't really like show up and try, you know, I was more showing up to like be there, tick the box, but like I was just whatever, you know, computer manual, that was everything. There was no classes for what I wanted to learn. No, I was just like reading. I think I taught myself Linux when I was like 13 years old, I went and bought a bunch of like, it was like Slackware 1.0. And I think I wanted the book really badly because it came with a floppy disk that would allow me to have Linux. And the reason I wanted Linux so bad is so I couldn't get like nuked off of IRC anymore because, you know, I was running Winsock and they could just like nuke me off. And I was like, these hackers think I'm a loser. I got to get into <laughs> Linux. And so I taught myself Linux at a very young age and then I realized, you know, hey, this is a cool skill set. I can like get a good job and you know that. that really? You, yeah. how old? Uh, I think I started working, um, like in it, like maybe 15. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, because most people like, well, there really wasn't the security job. I mean, it didn't really exist sure. until. Well, I wasn't, I, I, you know, I was gifted with like shamelessness. I would just go and like knock on someone's door and be like, Hey, you know, I want a job here. I'm like, please, <laughs> give, you know? And, uh, so I went to the local dial up ISP cause that was a thing. Like, you know, there was a gold rush and every little area was popping up with one. And, um, this one, uh, was run by this kind of, semi-sketchy local entrepreneur guy. I guess some of the backstory burned down a liquor store uh, at some point. I don't know if that's a true his, story his or His own not. liquor store? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and took the insurance money and then started started this ISP in, in our local town. And uh, I think I showed up and kind of knocked on the door. Hey, I'm, I want a job here. You know, I'll mop the floors, whatever. And, you know, I think they, they had me doing tech support and, and building websites, like early business websites, right? And, um, you know, before too long, I was, I was running the whole thing, 
you know, and that was great. So um, the guy that was, you know, the system administrator, nobody liked him. He stinked, like the whole kind of like, you know, uh, idea of like the weird IT guy that nobody likes, you know, he mm-hmm. was like the perfect, uh, perfect example of that. And I came in, I was like, I didn't do everything he's doing. And yeah, they Is gave that the bastard off operator from hell. <laughs> you take it from right from the manual. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty stinking. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but yeah. But, uh, yeah, I had a bunch of like cool jobs from that odd jobs. Like it was very early days, you know, so just learning how to run and dial up ISP and, funny story. So, you know, I think I'm like this hardcore, you know, badass hacker kid, you know, and, um, I didn't know, you know, I'm just, I just loved it. Right. I didn't know if I was good, not good, whatever did matter. I was just having fun, learn as much as I can. I run this ISP. And, um, I remember like at the time, what else are you into at that time and that age, like downloading MP3s and downloading movies and games and things like that. Sometimes, not so legally. Right. So I remember, uh, I took one of the servers at this ISP because we have these like super high power bandwidth links we pay for and we sell, you know, dial up access to, to other people. But I had like the, in the office, we had a, the best internet connection available. So we were, I set up a FTP server or something and I was sharing some MP3s. I don't know why I was doing this. <laughs> and, um, turns out I didn't like secure the server and, and it was running radius, which is the, the, uh, system that supplies the authentication, all the dial up, uh, customers. So all the people in my town, um, were logging in the same server to get on the internet that I was like hosting free, <laughs> you know, music MP3 files from, you know, I thought it was cool. I'm like, yeah, I'm sharing music, like part of the revolution, you know, free music. And, information um, needs to be free. Yeah. Information <laughs> needs to be free. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, uh, in, inadvertently, uh, made our customers passwords free. So <laughs> I'm, I'm cruising through the halls of my high school, you know, and, you know, I was treated pretty well because every teacher in the school knew I was the one that ran the, the internet provider. So they're like, don't, you know, Greg's the man, like he can like hook it up, you know? So they gave me a little special treatment, you know, it was pretty nice. And, um, anyway, sounds like a prison situation almost (laughs) (laughs) extra commissary. Yeah. Literally. I think like, what were the benefits? Like I was allowed to have a cell phone and I'm telling you, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) you're right. You nailed it. High school is a little bit like prison. And I was allowed coffee that in class. That was like a special thing that no other kid got. And that that was enough to make me feel good, you know, but, um, yeah, one day I was walking through the halls and, and this, this story is important because I think it kind of sets up my journey. Right. So I'm walking through the halls and this kid who's also, um, you know, into computers and kind of like, you know, my, my group was not very nice to him because he was like super, uh, nerdy, but not in a good way. I don't know. We were just kind of picked on. We were assholes. Come on. It's high school. Mm-hmm. I'll admit it. Right. Yeah. We're, we're not very nice this guy. So That's he right. got, he got me back pretty good. So he comes, bumps up to me. He's like, Hey, um, you know what? I know your password, Greg. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Oh yeah. Um, he's like, I know your password and I know all the passwords for everybody. Uh, and I'm like, how's that possible? He's like, cause I hacked you guys. I was like, what are you talking about? And he said my password. Um, and I remember at that moment, like that feeling of your stomach dropping. And I'm like, holy shit, like this guy like hacked me and I'm the Mr. Badass hacker guy, you know? And at that time I realized 
maybe I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> maybe I really need to figure out. I've been spending all this time learning how to hack into other people. I haven't really thought anything about how to defend myself. And, and that really was a awakening call for me at like, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, where I was like, man, got to actually think about the other side of the coin. I'm a victim. That does not feel nice. And sure enough, he had figured out from the, you know, logging in to download the music and you just back out a couple of directories and, and oh, he had access to, transversal. <laughs> yeah, he had Ouch. access to whatever he wanted. Yeah, exactly. Ouch. So, uh, it's not very fun. <laughs> uh, I felt like a real idiot. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, so, so that flipped a bit for me. And uh, by, by the way, you shouldn't because that, that, that is actually, I think Apache got hacked in almost the exact same way. Yeah. They had a web server, the Apache Hosting web server. MP3s. No, no, <laughs> no. But they had an FTP server on this or somehow attached through file share or something yeah. to the same directory as the website. So sure. if you uploaded malware into the FTP server, it was mirrored and ran as an executable as a web user on right. the website. So I mean, if Apache can't get it right, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, you know, obviously I shouldn't have been running that no, system. And no, I, no. I, I um, you know, learned an important lesson. And I think that what was cool was that um, after going through that experience and, you know, it was pretty traumatizing. I was like, holy shit. Um, I, I was, I think it all came out, right? I got in trouble at work and, you know, they didn't fire me because nobody else could run the thing. But, you know, it just got pretty testy, right? So, I bet. Yeah, it was not not a fun time. Were the police involved at all? No, 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 nothing, nothing like that. <laughs> Those are other stories. But, uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, the bit flipped for me, and I, I started thinking about things from a different perspective. I was. I, Did and you I have remember, to like change everybody's passwords? Like, what was the what was the result of that? I don't remember. Yeah, huh. maybe. Um, I just remember that from that point on. Like I kind of switched and I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to spend as much time learning about defense as, as offense from the cybersecurity thing that I'm so passionate about. Right. And, uh, before it was all about, you know, just hacking and s smashing and just, you know, being a, being a dick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Until yeah. you're on the receiving end of that. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Maybe there's something to this other thing. So, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I kind of went from, from red team to blue team that day. Did you, did you really go all the way over or do you feel well, like you straddled the line? I yeah. Mean, I mean, of course you, you straddle an eye, but I think from well, a not career, necessarily. some people are like, from a I'm career over. perspective, what was, what was interesting is I spent the rest of my career, um, uh, what I believe now and possibly what's made me so successful in, in, in the business of cybersecurity is that I've spent all my efforts innovating on the blue team side, right? And, um, up until now we're doing some things on, on, uh, at ghosts, uh, on the red team side or purple team or however you want to say it. But, um, I spent most of my career, like really focused on, you know, defense and innovation on the defense side. And, um, the whole time, you know, there was a lot of time I felt like, why is nobody else spending any time here? And, uh, it's just not, it's not the sexy part. Right. I've or it this, wasn't for the longest time. This one guy said something this one time to me that made me it stuck with me and I, I'd love to hear your take on it. It was this off the cuff comment. He was kind of walking away when he was saying it, but he's like, red team is a or sorry, blue team is a losing man's game. Yeah. He's like, you know, with the implication of that I can break into anything you want yeah. to stop me from yeah. breaking into. And sure. So what do you what do you think about that? How's that strike you? Well, you know, um, 
I think there's a lot of truth to that. It depends who's playing. So um, obviously, if you are Bank of America, um, you can't uh, play the red team game uh, and, and, and fight back. You have to play blue team. You have to invest in securing yourself. You have to do something. You can't do nothing. You can have this idea, and I've certainly gone through after being in this industry for, you know, almost 20 years now, um, you know, thinking hopelessness, like, you know, no matter what we do, we're never going to solve this problem, right? Maybe we make it a little harder for them and then they catch up and it's just like this endless game of cat and mouse and, and all of that. So anyway, um, you know, I think that uh, there, there's a lot of truth to that. If you're the United States and it's us versus China, then, yeah, I definitely think the best offense wins. Uh, and, and you should, you know, play offense instead of defense. Gotcha. But you can't not do anything. You can't just leave the the, the castle unguarded. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think he was more... Th- as a, as a personal profession, he's like, why would I want to be on the team that's always losing? I'd rather be on the red team where I'm always winning. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, that, that was kind of the attitude that, um, I saw a lot of people in our industry take, because of course it sounds a lot cooler to be like, I'm the guy that hacks everything and creates all the new hacks and what to do. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing is you have to, you have to be able to have defense, right. And somebody's got to pick that job. That's right. So I picked it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's more money to be made as a blue teamer, to be honest. Um, even the best red teamers I know are, some of them are just barely scraping by, but they're amazing, you know, sure. like really awesome, talented people. But yeah. Yeah. And I've met some of them. They, they don't look like they're doing so good to me. Yeah. Some, some legendary guy. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you flip the switch. Now you're on the blue team side. What, yeah. what is, what is the next phase of your, Cause you're still like pretty young guy. Like. Very young. Yeah. Yeah. I worked at a couple of startups. I, I tried to go to uh, school. I tried to do the college things because the whole conventional wisdom, you got to go to college, not be a, a failure in life. And yeah, you know, that it, go? <laughs> it did go so well. <laughs> yeah. They didn't, they didn't have any hacking or infosec at the time. So, what you know, that? I took what my, is that Rick and Morty quote? Like, uh, like, um, Something like college is not a place for smart people or, or school is not a place for smart people. Well, yeah, I mean, don't want to get too, physis- um, you know, deep diving on the whole if university, I feel like that's been a really well debated topic now on right. the, the values of it. But, you know, I think my general take on it is that it's not for everyone and they need more options in the system. And uh, I definitely uh, have seen as you, I've, you know, gotten older and had a lot of experiences, started a couple of companies, had hundreds of employees work for me. It's that you need people that go through the system and get that kind of education where they're kind of set up to come in and just be a really strong individual contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that that's not necessarily the entrepreneur's journey, right? I think that, yeah. um, you know, that, that most schools and the entrepreneurial journey not necessarily taught in the classroom and they, they don't really hit on those notes. Right. Yeah. I forget some entrepreneur somewhere. I can't remember who it was. Somebody pretty famous was basically like, I'll give a hundred thousand dollars to students to not go to school and become an entrepreneur Yeah, and fail. Sure. Because you learn so much more from the failures and it's just trying to do it at all. 100%. And then the failure than you would ever learn in a theoretical setting like yeah. a school, which I think that's true in like many different ways, but like I think probably the most important way for me other than the obvious would be you, you don't 
like you're learning like anthropology or learning history or yeah. learning, you know, introductory and art and like just weird, like, sure. I mean, it's kind of useful sort of in weird ways here and there, but man, if you have to learn how to start up an LLC, if you have to learn how to pay your taxes, you yeah. have to learn how to do payroll. I mean, there's basic business mechanics just, you know, I mean, I'm not even talking the sexy stuff. I'm just sure. talking about incorporation and, you know, basic stuff. Well, I went through, oh, it must've been like almost a decade of feeling like man, I didn't achieve what I was supposed to achieve by not graduating college and beating myself up about it. And, um, you know, started my first company and had to, you know, plan success in the entrepreneurial world. And then I think it finally dawned on me. I got invited to, to, you know, le guest lecture at Stanford on entrepreneurism. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I'm like, you know what? Maybe it worked out okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe right. I shouldn't beat myself up anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So my 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 message to anybody going through that similar path and struggling with uh, the the mental side of coping with you know, am I a failure? It's like, no, nah, give yourself a little bit of breathing room there. You might be on the the right track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it certainly depends on. If, if they're the kind of person who plays video games all day, this is no entrepreneurship is not for you. You need, sure. you need, you need to, this is a definitely a self-starter sort of like if you're doing 20 things at once and you can't get your head on straight because you're like so many things excite you about life. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe entrepreneurship could be okay. You know? Like, yeah. Well, that, that's the other thing. I think that there's also a problem that I'm seeing right now where it's, too easy to start a company and i think that we've kind of over glamorized the startup journey to a bit where people are starting companies where they probably really shouldn't they don't really have whatever that kind of uh you know that, that kind of grit and whatever makes up a, a successful entrepreneur i think is is a lot more nuanced than oh it's somebody smart somebody i think there's a lot of resiliency in and the the traits that make up entrepreneur they're not willing to give up they can take you know getting punched in the face and and getting knocked down and getting back up and just staying at it right mm -hmm. and um you know i think that kids listen to podcasts or they they hear all these stories and you know during the zero interest rate uh times where you know almost anything any good idea could get funded right and Oh, my brother went to Stanford. Oh, we'll give you, you know, a million dollars to to seed your startup on on whatever. And a lot of companies got started. And I think that, um, you know, I I just saw this like riding in an Uber, and uh, every Uber driver that you chat with is like, oh, I'm working on my startup. And um, you know, you want them to be successful. You want that to work. The back of your mind, you're like. This is actually a really hard road, and I hope they know what they're getting into because it's certainly not the, the easy path. But, you know, you and I have something similar. Well, I have many things in common, but one thing is that we both started in security, in the trenches, in IRC, yeah. like getting booted sure. off of IRC, you yeah. know, like you, you get hit in the face every day in IRC. You know, that's yeah. that's a pretty rough place for a kid to kind of come up. And the thing about it is – if you don't know what you're talking about, people will call you out on it very quickly. And sure. so you kind of get that, I wouldn't say fully inoculated, but you, you get a sense of, it doesn't matter as much. These people are mad at me. Like I still know who I am. I know I'm not an idiot. Yes. Sure. I screwed up that one thing or whatever, but also I'm going to get better. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to figure out how that thing works. So I don't sound like an idiot next time I talk about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, times are very different. They right? were. And, and they were. Um, certainly I don't, um, you know, have any teenage 
you know, kids. So I don't quite know what they're going through exactly right now, but I can imagine it's also very difficult in its own ways with Instagram and TikTok and all these things. But, um, true, yeah, true. I think that, but, but that, but that doesn't measure competency. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that, look, we grew up, uh, very lucky that, uh, and I say we, cause we're about the same age and we obviously had success in the same industry, right? Around the same times we grew up at a certain age and we're passionate about something that turned out to be a really big thing. And I almost think it was like a born at the right time type of scenario. But now it's, now it's AI and you know, yeah, it's, that's it's, where there's always another, th- thing. that's where I'm going. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, AI is going to be that for, for these kids generation. And I'm not saying the ship has sailed. There's certainly plenty of room in cybersecurity for, for kids to break into it now. Um, but they got to do the legwork. It's going to be hard. Right. Um, would you recommend it? Would I recommend it? Honestly, no. I would recommend people put all their efforts in AI right now. You know? Yeah. I, you know. I, I don't know that cybersecurity is going to be the same problem it is today and and looked at as a career in the same way as it is today because I do believe that AI will be so transformational that I think everything uh, in this world and this IT world and the problem spaces around IT are going to fundamentally change forever and look completely different in 10, 20 years. Interesting. I still think security is going to be a big deal. Oh, 100%. But I... It's going to look different. It's going to look different. It's going to look sure. a lot different. So if you're starting something using old technology today, yeah, even if it's a new idea, sure, that's going to be kind of rough on you, I think. Oh, yeah. There was this concept of a security operations center. I spent my career building them for big organizations. You literally build a big room, you put TVs on the wall, you create all these seats with these you know, great computers with multiple screens. And then you put a human being in there and, and have them scroll through and look at all the attacks that are hitting the company every day. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was a thing. And you would build these big centers and you'd show them off. Look how good we are at cybersecurity. Well, those don't scale anymore. They don't work. And there's too many attacks for a human to scroll through. So um, the whole concept that we invented of a security operations center, you know, 10 years ago um, is, is not even really a thing anymore. So what is it going to look like post AI um, in, in 10 years from now? Right? I used to have an office in one of those. Yeah. So I, was, I was one of those guys <laughs> sitting in that room with a bunch of TVs. TVs didn't do anything. They're no, all, they're all they, just they for show. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> the actual thing is this little dinky laptop that was doing everything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But when you're in there, you felt like you're in the matrix. You well, like, you know, um, all these customers would come by and like stare at you like you're in a zoo or something. And, mm-hmm. You know, they had no idea what you're doing, but they were very impressed that you were in there. <laughs> this is the nerd aquarium. <laughs> Walk by. Don't spook them. <laughs> well, it kind of makes you think like, you know, you look at NASA, for instance, and all their screens and the dials and, you know, they're all doing something, but are they really, you know, yeah. like, are they really? Yeah. It's just right. the same, same deal with us. Yeah. All right. So I read somewhere along the way that you actually did some consulting for some three letters and four letters and yeah. whatever. NASA wanna, is on that list. You want to you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, funny story. So it, consulting with them started out um, by being the head of security of uh, what was essentially like the precursor to cloud um, so what happened was um, used to, you know, back in the day you wanted to host a website, you would pay some company like GoDaddy or something, they would host your website. And then uh, there became this demand for more 
customization and computing power and so on and so forth. And um, that kind of sparked this new industry. And uh, a lot of it happened in, in Texas originally, which is really interesting. This is in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, the idea was this dedicated hosting. So instead of somebody managing um, these servers for you, we we're going to put these computers plug them into a high-speed internet connection in a data center and just set it on a rack and you're going to log into it, Mr. Customer, wherever you are. You'll never meet us. We'll just, you know, do this all electronically and transactionally. And that was called the the dedicated uh, server business. And that kind of popped up. Kind of pre-cloud. Pre-cloud. And it was essentially the precursor to the cloud. Mm-hmm. So uh, I ended up, um, you know, landing a job at one of these companies and, and kind of became their head of, of security. So what was really interesting was, you know, when you offer somebody a very powerful computer with a very powerful uh, internet connection, a very affordable price, and you could log in and use it from anywhere with complete anonymity, you never have to show up to complete your order, you just need a credit card and a name. Yeah, so there's all kinds of nefarious types of people that would maybe buy that service, right, and maybe not use it for a very legal intention, so... Anyways, we, we kind of figured this out because we started getting all these letters one day. And uh, letters were from all kinds of different uh, federal agencies, from, you know, You don't mean physical letters, do you? Well, yeah, emails, physical letters, facsimiles, really? all oh, wow. of the above. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, they were not too sophisticated, and I think that's why I became... You start getting faxes, you know. <laughs> you know you're in trouble. <laughs> yes, so, um, you know, it, and, and it was interesting. So um, they would come, and, and I was the guy, they were like, oh, you need to, to meet the, the head of, you know, the, the director of cybersecurity, and then here comes this little kid, you know, me... <laughs> You know, probably still <laughs> acting on the face and, um, you know, early 20s, you uh-huh. know, 20, 21, 22 or something. And here I come showing up in like an Aqua Teen Hunger Force shirt, <laughs> like looking like a, you know, a total scrub. And, um, you know, these guys are like FBI agents, Secret Service agents, and they're like, you know, serious characters, you know, and they sure. come in and they're just like, who the fuck the hell is this kid, you know, and. Anyways, uh, after, you know, meeting them and them coming in to like confiscate equipment and things like that, you just develop a relationship. And they're like, wow, this kid's really smart. Let's see if he can help us out. And so anyways, uh, developed a relationship with FBI. Uh, I was working in Dallas at the time, so it was like their local field office. And um, then later the U.S. Uh, Secret Service, which a lot of people don't know, but when they're not protecting senators and presidents, you know, they call that active duty when they're inactive, um, they're, uh, or protection duty. I'm sorry. They, when they're not doing protection duty, they do often cybercrime. Now they started off, they're famous for like, you know, financial crimes, like check fraud and things like that. Kind of fitting. Yeah, that's right. And then they kind of turned that into, uh, knowing that cyber was a new thing. They created this group called nitro around the same time I started working with them. And that was like this hardcore, we're going to train you to be the best, like cyber criminal busters in the world. And they were pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, and but they uh, still needed your help. It sounds like yeah, they they still need your help. They didn't know the basics of how the internet worked, and they didn't know <laughs> the anything. Best, the best <laughs> don't know how the internet works. Yeah, I mean, Uh-oh. you know, you gotta start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. But they knew they go get help, right? So, yeah. uh, so they they kind of like you know brought brought me in, and um, you know they didn't they had very weird structures of how they could work with 
you know, the, the private sector at the time, they didn't really have a lot of mechanisms for it. So what, what did that look like? Uh, well, for the FBI, it was really weird. I was basically set up as a confidential informant, even though I had no idea who I was, I was, you know, I wasn't informing on anyone. I was meeting with them and they were like, okay, what, what is this IP? Where is this? What does this mean? Like, you know, just, I was literally just like a hacker consultant for them. And I remember weird moments where they're asking me to like explain dns to them at a, at a, at a starbucks and well, <laughs> a bunch of fbi agents it's complicated. yeah and, and they're and they're paying me money in cash that oh, really? were yeah they were giving me cash and uh, i remember I the weirdest thing heard of that happening yeah and they have to bring guns with them um yeah. because when they're giving somebody cash they have to be armed it was just a bizarre thing and, um, yeah, so the, the FBI guys, I kind of phased out over time working with them because like their culture is just really weird. They're very tight lipped. It's very one way. Like we're going to ask you to help us, but we're not going to tell you anything. And that's just kind of their culture internally. And, and they're just, it's not nice. Yeah, it right? redu reduces. Yeah, they just treat everybody like a criminal basically. And I'm like, Hey, you, you know, a who paid criminal? Who, who's, who, whose side are you on? Yeah, they. <laughs> I kind of felt that way working with those guys. But the Secret Service so had. So you a never got you never got friendly friendly with them. I mean, I of course I did. Um, the the main guy I was working with, um, I can't remember his name now. Tom something rather. Yeah, he ended up leaving. I guess that he explained to me that. Through the cyber, if you want to be in cyber in the FBI, at least at the time, you had to do your penance. It was like six months or something of, of being involved in the child pornography uh, cyber stuff. And that was just part of the journey. And and because it was such a, like a heinous thing that somebody has to do it. That, cycle them out. Yeah, that you have to cycle through it, you know. And, and he was just like, it's too much for me. I can't, I can't do this. So uh, I don't know if that was what kind of led to him leaving or not, but he definitely talked about that. I don't blame him when I was running yeah. EHAP. It, that's about how long I lasted about six months, maybe a little bit, mm. more, maybe a full year, but, uh, there's certain things you just cannot unsee. And you're like, Oh yeah. my God, that's just burning my soul. Right. Well, <laughs> luckily <laughs> AI is going to automate that stuff for us now. I think, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, Hopefully. maybe. Yeah. But, uh, God bless people that do that work. I mean, it's, yeah. that's, that's terrible stuff and somebody's got to deal with it sure, for sure. Um, but pivoting secret service, those guys were awesome. I put all yeah. my eggs in that basket and, uh, I had a lot of fun with those guys. What did that, what did that, it was a similar sort of situation. They just need more help. They need to understand what DNS looks like. And yeah, pretty much, uh, there are tools to run that kind of thing. Yeah. They were busting this, this hacker kid. Um, they would bring me, they brought me in to like help them with their arrest and be like the translator. So we, we Literally, they arrested this kid and brought him in a, like a holding cell type environment. Just sit with him for a couple of hours and talk through. And they wanted me to be the hacker translator. So they just had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Were you in the room with the kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he turned out to be, you know, uh, the Australian kid. He was one of the most brilliant kids that uh, I'd ever met. And I thought to myself, like, first of all, he was a little bit younger than me, I thought, you know, he is going to be like somebody who changes the world and he needs to be kind of steered in the right direction. That was my take on it. And uh, I was like, I must like know this kid because he's just so phenomenal. Mm. And uh, the, to this day, uh, I bumped into him for the first time in like 10 years at a, a conference in Vegas that was sponsored by the government, mm. you know, and um, he was in that there and he came up to me. He's like, Greg. And I, I looked at him for a while. He looked like uh, the, the 
Justin Timberlake uh, character from the Social Network movie. He had like mm-hmm. cur- curly hair. He was wearing a suit. He looked really sharp. And I'm looking at him like, who the hell are you? And then it dawned on me who he was. I was like, holy shit. And uh, yeah, and he's he's running an amazing company now. His governor's his biggest client, and, and he's doing phenomenal. So did he? Phenomenal. Uh, so did he get it fully indicted, or was he got a jail free card? No, they totally. You know, he's Australian, so they threatened to deport him, and um, yeah, and uh, so he ended up having to work for the FBI. They put him through the grinder, like through hell for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he came out okay, and uh, he's got citizenship now, and uh, he's running a, a awesome company and um, doing amazing. Huh? Wow! Yeah. What a cool story. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I've heard that a number of times. The FBI will find a way to give you a job. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. And um, you know, they actually got mad at me because I, I became friends with them after that, and I was trying to like you know mentor him, and I was just like, man, I gotta do something with this case. Just absolutely brilliant, genius, genius. And uh, anyway, they caught wind of that, and they, they got so pissed at me. Why? Why would they? Care? Yeah, because he was like a you know under investigation criminal, and I was like one of them, you know, and I'm like befriending him on the side kind of deal while they're still in process. Yeah, but it, yeah, but. Boy, it was comprom- it was compromising to them in some way or something. I some don't fashion. think it is though, because it gives the get- what you really want is this yeah. kid to not commit crime anymore. Yeah, exactly. But they, and- didn't, they didn't get that. Didn't yeah, get that. that seems odd. Yeah, maybe they thought he was going to corrupt me and turn me into that guy. Or something. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Or hack you, or figure out their <laughs> their bigger plans or something. Who knows? Who knows? Interesting. Yeah, they're good guys. So I like the Secret Service guys. They had cool, you know, cool cool mentality, better culture, and they yeah. do good work. Interesting. So what was next for you in the career path? Uh, I ended up um, getting recruited by the NSA. Uh, that didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> uh, I failed the polygraph for uh, for drug use, for smoking marijuana. I Interesting. Think. Yeah, smoking pot. Why didn't yeah. you just tell them the truth? Well, that's what happened. I told them the truth. Oh, that. <laughs> yeah, so so what happened is, so uh, the 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 deepest clearance so it was for for pretty deep uh you know offensive hacking group in nsa and i basically got the job they give you it's called a conditional job offer and uh, it's only conditional on you passing your uh getting your security clearance so then they're flying me back for the security clearance i had just done this what's called 10-year uh background investigation where you just go in and state every time you've done anything illegal so i'm just like from you know, the time I was, you know, 18 to now <laughs> I've done all these drugs and I'm not going to specifically say which ones or where, cause you know, I don't remember. There's been plenty of times where I had fun. So, uh, anyway, here you go. And I put it all in there, but the deal was like at the time they were super strict on, um, just blanket government policy. You can't use any illegal substances, uh, one year. Um, you know, before application or what have you mm. for starting the job. So anyway, I didn't remember cause I was not really using drugs at the time. Mm. Um, you know, and, um, I just, I don't know, we went through a phase of my life where I was just like, I'm, I'm I don't like smoking pot anymore. And, uh, so I show up and I'm getting ready to get wired up to do the poly and the investigators like, okay, so I've got your tenure here. All good. 
Um, last year, is there anything you forgot to mention on here? And I'm just thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, shit, you know what? There was this one time. It was about, you know, this day I smoked pot. And I was just like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just trying to be, like, fully honest, yeah. you know, not realizing that there would be a consequence. And the guy was just like, Greg, you can't, you can't tell me this. <laughs> <laughs> like, what you, I'm like, why not? <laughs> you know, you told me to be honest. I'm being honest here. He's like, well, it doesn't matter if you're a senator or a janitor at the, at the government. Like, this is our blanket policy, and uh, we, we can't complete the process now. And I was like, what are you talking about there? Like, you have to wait until it's been a year, and you have to come back. And I was like, so we just come back and do the poly because it's only in a couple more months. And he's like, no. You got to start the whole process over. And I was like, okay, so I got a re-interview and all this stuff. And they found me, by the way. So Mm -hmm. I just, one day I was getting off a plane and I was like maybe 24 years old at the time. Just had a weird voicemail. (laughs) So-and-so from the defense department, really interested in talking to you. Can you call me back? Uh, We have maybe a really cool opportunity for you. And turned out I was a recruiter from the NSA. And uh, interesting story, this guy, told me, you know, he lived in Illinois and he had been in a car accident and, um, you know, was, was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and he used to write code for the government. And uh, now they give him this job that he just works from home and he finds hackers all day. And he's like, I love my job. I'm really good at it. Awesome. I'm like, that's kind of cool. Sounds yeah. like something from a movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh. Yeah. <clears throat> so out of curiosity, how do you feel about that policy? Do you think it's... Oh, think they it got sense? rid of it. Yeah. I mean, it didn't... I remember the time, you know, uh, thinking, well, shit, how the hell are you going to hire the best hackers in the world if if you're this strict about something stupid smoking pot? But, you know, this is like... I'm 42 now. So, you know, this is what a long time ago, 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously, times have changed. Pot's illegal in most states now. I, I've... From what I understand they've really gotten very lax on that kind of stuff. And it's been a while now since they changed that policy, but at the time it didn't. So, um, you know, I mean, it's funny because uh, I ended up taking this job right after that. Cause it was this or this job called ArcSight, this little startup in, in California. Well. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I ended up saying, well, okay, well that didn't work out. So, um, I guess I'm taking this ArcSight job, ArcSight job. So I take the ArcSight job. And turns what, out what that was the job? Um, building security operations centers. And <laughs> wow. guess, guess who I was building for? <laughs> yeah. yeah, was the, it? The U.S. federal government. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, no, they were our customer. That was, I, I didn't get to unfortunately go back and, <clears throat> and work for NSA, but we sold a lot of stuff, boatloads of software to them. I was on the private sector side. I did big banks. What time, what time frame was this approximately? Uh, this was in the mid to late 2000s. So we... We joined, uh, or I joined kind of like may midstream through the company's journey. And, um, we, you know, kicked ass for a couple of years and we were the dominant player in the cybersecurity market. We had almost all of the fortune five, not 5,000 fortune 500 for sure. But globally, uh, we had a lot of the fortune 2000. Yeah. I, I did a bake off years ago with, uh, I want to say IntelliTactics, Netforensics, yeah. and ArcSight. And sure. ArcSight was... Blew it away. Yeah, way better. Oh, yeah. And, and cheaper. Yeah. Uh, by like 
maybe an order and a half magnitude. It was oh. way cheaper, <clears throat> like with a full cost of ownership or whatever. Interesting. Like so much so that the VCs of one of them called me and like, why didn't you choose us? Like, this is a huge contract. Like, why didn't you go with us? And I'm like, well, I explained all of the, the yeah. math behind my decision making. I'm like, yeah. I was I really very thorough. And uh, they're like, do you want to? you want to become an entrepreneur in residence? And I had no idea what that was. And I thought it was like an intern job. I'm like, I don't want to be an intern. Like, no, <laughs> I got a good job. What are you talking about? One of the that. very few, uh, very big mistakes I've made in my career. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That's funny. <clears throat> yeah. So, it was, it was a fun run. So you know? yeah. What was uh, life like at ArcSight? It was, uh, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, we were the, in, in our niche, we were the king of the hill and um, you know, that we had all the biggest customers. So I got to, you know, help build the the security operations for like JP Morgan Chase, a bunch of big financials, a bunch of big oil and gas companies. And, um, so I started off, I, I moved to New York City for that job and um, I, I ran kind of mostly the blue chip financials. Mm -hmm. And uh, later they gave me a job in London and I took that and I got to live over there and, and manage. Cool. Uh, so you had family there anyway, right? Uh, or Dad was born there, but they all you know, immigrated during World War Two. Oh, I see. Okay. They were dropping bombs on London when he was born. I heard, I heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's still kind of cool to go back and, you know, check out some places you might have heard about your grandparents. Oh, right sure. Here. Yeah. I had never even been to Europe before when I got that job. I was just like, you know what? Why not? And it was, it was the time of my life. Did you do some amazing. traveling while you were there too? Oh, I was it's so, it's so much place. so much easier to travel once you're in Europe. A hundred percent. And we just had clients everywhere. So I was always going to Milan or, you know, Paris or wherever to, to meet clients, right? Amsterdam. That's cool. Yeah. So I, so <clears throat> I also saw you wrote, um, arc OSI. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was interesting. So that was like, Basically, you know, I, I told you I kind of flipped the switch and I was always focused on, you know, how do I innovate on the defense side? And I came up with this, this clever idea that, um, you know, I would scrape all the information I could find online about malware, like the IP addresses and the DNS and everything for the command and control and uh, just kind of collect it all um, and shove it into the sim. And if I see any matches of this and any of the logs or network traffic, then flag that because if that match is going outbound, that may be, you know, some malware active in that environment. <clears throat> and uh, it was wildly successful, wildly successful. So yeah. much so that this was kind of pre-GitHub. Uh, when I, I released that as open source, I would use like Google code website because GitHub didn't exist, but they had, that was like the early, uh, Really get right. Everybody's downloading their open source from Google Code, mm -hmm. and uh, Google Code automatically installed the Google Analytics tag, so I could go and see um, if you go in Google Analytics and you're looking at all the hits on your website, you can look at this like network information tab, and it would show you like the reverse IP of all your website visitors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it would show the network name and so <laughs> I'm going through the list of network names and I'm like, you know, NSA, I'm like, they put their network name on there. That's, that's interesting, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, JP Morgan, bank of America, government of Japan, government of, it literally said government of Japan, government of Israel, like the largest companies in the world, Nike, Intel. And I'm like, wow they're downloading this. Like, this is really interesting. And that's when I realized like, okay, I'm onto something here. And, you know, we had like 
thousands of downloads and we were using this as the main tool to sell the product at that point. Like it was that, that popular. I actually uh, looked at it this morning. I went through the code this morning. That's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I won't critique it, but, but I, but um, the, uh, the question I had was um, more on the, the kind of the utility of it. So like, I download a bunch of like IP lists, block lists, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I, to, to tell, to tell you this story, I have to tell you a different story or ask the question. I have to tell you a story. Sure. So once upon a time back when I was running EHAP, um, this Australian guy, which kind of reminded me of the guy that you were in the room with, uh, he ended up hacking all of Australia, like just every machine in Australia. Maybe the same guy. <laughs> it could have been the same guy. <laughs> Uh, very, very, very smart guy. And, uh, and he did it all from our like anti-pedophile groups website, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I just don't know why he chose to do that. It was very odd. stupid, very odd. But so they had a piece of code, uh, running on their version of the NSA's websites or, or you know, servers or whatever sure. that would effectively kind of do what your code did. So it would download uh, a list of people doing bad things yeah. or supposedly potentially bad things. Sure. And then it'll, it would connect back as opposed to using an RBL. Right. And it would say, does the word hacking or hacker or whatever or security or anything appear on the website of that thing? Right. And if it does shut the entire network off. Right. And so it literally shut down like the head of the, like the NSA's or their version of the NSA's like, uh, like networks, like completely offline. Wow. <laughs> and so, I, they couldn't get a hold of me because they don't know who I am, but they got a hold, or the machine was in Canada. So they got a hold of Canadian Royal Mounted Police. They oh, got yeah. in touch with the ISP. The ISP got in touch with one of the people who were running it who got in touch with me. So it was like, dun, 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 and it finally got to me. And I'm like, I don't think this was a good design. Like, <laughs> could I potentially give you some pointers? And, you know, he's pretty pissed, but like, I'm like, look, I'm going to try to help you on this one, but yeah. uh, also I'll kick the guy out of the group. Don't worry. But, <laughs> but uh, so what, what do you, what do you see the utility of knowing that something is going to a compromised machine are, because there's a lot of compromised machines that are, yes, they're compromised. Like, home networks, but they're also benign at the same time. Like how do you, yeah, how yeah. Do you handle all that? Well, yeah. So uh, good question. Uh, at the time it was just incredibly effective. Um, a, a lot of, you know, traditional networks had their antivirus and they assumed that they had rooted all that out and uh, you're just not aware of what you're not aware of. So it was just give a whole new way of giving visibility of am I compromised or not, right? And uh, I think the, the, the most effective whenever we were able to pull um, some source of information that had the actual command and control uh, IP addresses or, or DNS, right, for, for, for known malware. And it, it spanned the gamut. Some of it was just kind of your traditional criminal, you know, uh, crimeware type of uh, malware and some of it was the like nastier nation state stuff and mm-hmm. uh, all of it was effective. And, um, we were, you have to think these are some of the largest organizations in the world that were then that had ArcSight and they were deploying this, uh, this, this very simple tool that was just like a novel idea that just nobody had really done it before. Mm-hmm. And it just had like miraculous effects. They were just finding wild stuff. Like, um, one of my first, so, uh, <clears throat> Long story short, I took this, we got acquired by HP. 
Uh, and I started my first company on the same topic. That was uh, ThreatStream. It's now called Anomaly, and they're still going. They're one of yeah, the leaders. So, so ThreatStream yeah. got rebranded. Is that the That's uh, right. Okay, okay. So, yeah, how did that come to come to be? Yeah, well, you know, we got bought by HP in 2010. It was a, you know, at the time, it was a big acquisition. Was that good for you? or? Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of equity. I joined kind of halfway through the uh, through the. Uh, journey of ArcSide wasn't early enough to, for it to be a life-changing event for me. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, it was uh, it was fun. I learned very quickly that HP was not a company for that I wanted to uh, work at. I think it, it hit me whenever they were setting up my email, and it was greg.martin3 <laughs> at, at hp.com. I, I asked him, I was like, did you have a typo in here? <laughs> They're like, no. <laughs> You are number three. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, the only reason I stayed around for however long I did eight months, a year is because you know, I was still living in London. They were paying for everything. My, my uh, apartment in Chelsea and all that. So, um, you know, I, I, I knew at that point, I was like, I got to do something. This is my, my shot. And it's really funny. So um, at HP, right? They were well aware, uh, or the team that was running ArcSight at the time, they were well aware of this tool that I built because it was so successfully being used in, in all of their kind of pre-sales engagement. They would install my open source tool. And one day I got a call from this team internally and they're like, we're going to need you to take it off the, off Google code. I was like, what are you talking about? It's so successful. Why would we want to take it down? They're like, oh, we want to sell it. And I'm like, okay. That's that's awesome. So how much of that do I get? And they're like, uh, what are you talking about? You don't get anything. Like, well, don't I? I mean, I created it. Isn't that how this works? And they're like, no, not at all. You work for us. You created it while you work for us, blah, 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 blah. So I was like, okay, um, I'm going to need to call you back. I had to go. I didn't tell him I was going to talk to a lawyer, but <laughs> when I got a lawyer. Yeah, and the lawyer was like, look, you know, you, you were lucky that you – uh, made an MIT license when you, you know, put it out there so they can copy it. They can sell it all they want, but you know, it's out there and you can just leave it out there. And worst thing that can happen is they can fire you and, um, you're not selling it. Yeah. 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 So I was like, well, I was going to leave anyway. So this works out, uh, works out a real treat. And, um, so they were, they were actually hardcore, like, Whatever we got to do, we're going to get legal on you. They were not being very kind or nice about it, right? So, Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a pleasant thing to go through because I just thought, hey, you know, you'd think you would be nicer to somebody who kind of created this cool thing that's been so so uh, successful in here. Mm -hmm. So I went and, uh, and, and started uh, the company with the same kind of ideas and, so and concepts. So even after all that, they didn't give you a counter. They're like, hey, we still want to sell this thing. I like, don't think they really, you know. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty short-sighted. <clears throat> yeah, for sure, for sure. Because they could have made a bunch of money and kept you. You know, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a win-win. Exactly. I think after you get acquired, go through a big acquisition like that, a lot of changes, like talent leaves, and you know who who's really in charge and making all the decisions. At that point, it's in flux, and I think it was just at that weird time where everything's changing, and you know, I don't think they were making the smartest decisions, and I don't blame them for that, but. I was out of there anyway, so you know it was just interesting. Yeah, you know it was it's funny because I was, I remember at the time I, I thought for a moment I was like, oh maybe I just sell it to him. Maybe give me like a million bucks. I could be a millionaire. They give me a million dollars. And at the time, you know, so young, bless me. <laughs> I was like, that would change my life, you know. And you know now the company's worth you know you know 
Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you started the follow-on company to basically rescue this code or do the same thing over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, um, I was like, how can I make this better? Like, how would I make this into a version that, that people would, would actually pay for, you know? So, so that's what I did. I left the open source out there. I kind of changed it to more of like a freemium, like, Hey, um, I'm a company now, but this will remain free. But if you want like the better, more awesome version, um, you know, we have that too. And so With that support was support and all that. Yeah, exactly. So that was a uh, threat stream. That was the name of the company. And, uh, I started that in 2012, uh, for my flat in London. And I moved back to New York city and, um, was able to land a couple of, uh, early customers. The first one was this company called kinetic, uh, Q I Q. They were a defense contractor in, uh, in England and they made these really cool robots. Uh, that uh, went on the battlefield and would like defuse IEDs and bombs and things like that. Huh. And uh, they had a nasty problem that China had hacked them. And the way they found out that China had hacked them is that uh, somebody saw online that um, some Chinese uh, site was selling bomb-filled robots that looked absolutely identical to their bomb-diffusing robots. I mean, so wait, bomb-filled. Robots? No, bomb diffusing. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it's an identical. But they were identical. And at the time, that, that technology was pretty sophisticated and pretty unique. They didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, bomb diffusing robots like that. And this thing was like a mirror carbon copy clone. And uh, so wow. they, they what a bummer. tried forever to figure out, you know, how do we get these guys out? And they couldn't uh, figure it out for some reason. I guess they didn't have the talent or whatever. And uh, we were the first ones to kind of help them find them rooted out and uh it was just that simple give the visibility find the command and control you know figure out where it's beaconing from and and uh root it all out Mm. so were you able to get them out of there yeah awesome yeah first first uh first customer paying and uh you know you go from being a tech guy to actually like learning how to ask for money and closing a deal and you become an entrepreneur you're like wait a minute i gotta actually ask somebody for money yes like, you do yeah i have to be a salesperson like <laughs> well I you no... said you were kind of born without shame well so. yeah I, I learned that i actually turned no, i'm really good at that yeah. so yeah. yeah so i asked them for money i remember like they like nailed it to my i think my condo in new york <laughs> i got the check in my mailbox <laughs> uh, and um anyways that was really cool so i was able to like get a couple of paying customers you know some of them pretty good and was it literally um, just you or do you have some devs working with you? Or? Yeah, I had like one dev and it was like kind of like the contractor you get online. I think he was in <laughs> Ukraine or something. And, <laughs> yeah, God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> and I would write like my really shitty Python code and he would go in and fix everything that was broken in, in my code and we would just go back and forth. And uh-huh. um, Yeah, and it was great. And so... I went and pitched my uh, former CEO. I just kind of cold hit him up on LinkedIn. And at the time, he was just like the guy that I rode in the elevator a couple of times. You know, he didn't know me. He was like, yeah, maybe I popped up on his desk because I was the kid in London that, that had the big expense reports I never filed. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's uh, like, that guy, uh, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, he, he took the call and, and uh, was so gracious. And uh, his name's Tom Riley. He, he's absolute legend in Silicon Valley. And, uh, he, he, I showed him, you know, the, 
the the all the people that downloaded and then i created this other thing and and i'm like i created this company and look i told him i was able to get this customer in england this defense contractor pay for it and here's their success story they were able to get the bad guys out he's like this is awesome i'm not really technical i'm going to show this to uh, my technical guy, the, the CTO guy that founded ArcSite. And if he likes this, then we're both going to invest. And um, yeah, and I was like, really? Wow. That's, that's awesome. So, wow. That's great. Yeah, that you got like, That's like really close to home. I mean, they are. That's right. So I'm surprised they didn't already know who you were if given the fact that this was successful. Well, it was, you know, ArcSite was a big company, yeah. like 800 people at the yeah. time, maybe more than that, you know, yeah, and still though. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so, okay. So they were your first two investors. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, they were my first two investors and, um, they both joined the board and, uh, they flew me, you know, down to, uh, San Francisco. I think Tom, uh, had me like sleep on his boat. He's like, oh, you don't have to pay for a hotel room, sleep on my boat. I'm like, oh, that's nice. So he had a boat down in the Marina at the time. I think I slept on the boat and, uh, Met them downtown, some office, and they were just like really just vetting me out. They're like, "Who are you? What's your life story? Like, where'd you go to college?" I'm like, "Oh shit, uh, you know." And uh, you know, I was just <laughs> honest and just told them my whole story. And they're like, "All right, well, you know what? We're each gonna write you a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You better not fuck this up. And the one rule is you have to move here." And Ouch. I was like, "I do not want to move. Why? Because I was loving New York and I liked why my did, life why there." Why do they want you there? They wanted me in the Bay Area, I think, just to kind of like keep me under their nose. But also, I think at the time, the mentality was that if you're in Silicon Valley, things are just going to happen for you and that you just can't do it. Yeah, at the else. time, that might have been sort of true. It 100% was. You were not, at the time, you were not really getting funded. Yeah. Unless you were in the Bay Area. That's true. I mean, that's changed. Especially in Austin. Like, yeah. Not that you were coming from Austin, but, right. uh, but in Austin, like around that time, you, you really weren't getting funded unless it was Austin Ventures and, yeah. They were the big guys and they were yeah. only funding a handful of projects at a time. So. Right. Yeah. This is 2012, 2013. So, uh, I, I did, I, I packed up everything. I had to buy like a used, uh, car and a little SUV. I think it was called a Honda escape and <laughs> I escaped New York and, uh, drove cross country. There's a movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I drove cross country and I, I remember I stopped. I think I, I was like meeting with, uh, Wells Fargo or somebody, I, I went to like a couple of like company meetings on the way to like pitch them, my company, like to sell to them. And I remember I would like, like on the drive, like on the drive. Huh. And I remember That's I'd cool. like put on a suit in the parking lot and have like my car with all those junk on the top, you know, and like <laughs> all your girlfriend and the dog in the car waiting on me. And I go in in my suit, show up like I just flew in the plane, and like given, given the pitch, you know, uh, yeah, it was good, good times. But you know, that I, I make it, was that useful at all? Did you actually get any clients? hundred percent was useful. Really? Oh yeah. hundred percent crushed wow. it. Yeah. I had a lot of stories like that actually. Wow. But, you know, I just like, I knew this was my moment. Like I could not screw this up and I put right. everything into it. And, you know, they said, Hey, you know, move to the Bay area and no, no question. I was like, I will do whatever it takes. And uh, I did, I moved to the Bay area and they said everything would go off like a rocket ship. I did not believe them. I moved to the Bay area and it went off like a rocket ship. Were they useful out of curiosity other than money? Do they give you introductions or anything? Incredible. Yeah. Oh, okay. Incredible. And so they were smart. Money. And in fact, Tom had at, at the time, you know, he took a chance on me, but he turned out to be a lifelong mentor. 
director to me and he's backed all my company since we're great friends now. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he, he was instrumental in my person, my own personal success. Uh, I learned so much from him and the art of venture capital, raising money, running a company, uh, everything, you know, I owe so much to Tom. He's, he's been, uh, incredible to just give his time and wisdom and he's just got you know, a, a, an amazing human being that is just so generous with his own time. And, um, he's just been a, a force in my life and a huge inspiration. I've learned so much from him. So I'm very grateful and thankful for Tom. I then, uh, now, you know, try to pay it back and I, I coach and help a lot of young entrepreneurs and, and you know, try to be their Tom. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually knew that about you. Um, some, some side conversations about you uh, around the neighborhood. So, <laughs> sure. so it's really, it's really, I mean, uh, you'd be surprised how it kind of gets around how people are like, Oh yeah, he's actually like trying to help out and stuff. So yeah. words out about you, my friend. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, look, you know, um, you, you don't really do it for that necessarily. Um, I, you you I realize that, so. that it feels good. And, and a lot of times you can be thankless and, Maybe like even 10 years down the road, somebody will tell you a cool story and you don't remember anything about it. And they're like, you know, that really helped me out when, when this situation happened or whatnot. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really rewarding. So moved to the Bay area and it took off like a rocket ship. Yeah. I think, um, within a month of landing there, Google ventures, um, ended up leading our, our first really? VC round. And that Interesting. was, it was crazy. My life changed on, on, in that moment. So you were also working on honeypots at the same time or is that yeah, sort of that a side a, project? Or yeah, that was like a fun, funny, completely unrelated side project. I came up with this idea. I, I, I'll tell you the story actually. Um, it's, it's actually a good story. Uh, the, there was a company, the threat Intel space was very crowded, very fast. Right. And it's funny that, reason we changed our name to anomaly is that there was like four to 10 different companies at the time um at any given moment that, that had threatened the name so their biggest competitor was threat connect there was connect. like yeah. threat quotient there was threat grid there was threat everything and so it just got so confusing to the customers i'd be on a call and they're like wait wait which threat company is this <laughs> You know, it was so funny. And then there was the meme threat, but that came out yeah. that was just the icing on the cake. Yeah. It was hilarious, by the way. Yeah. Hilarious. I love whoever did that. That guy's a legend. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I'm pretty sure I have a threat, but uh pin somewhere. Oh, that's amazing. Was so timely. So, so timely and amazing. Uh, so there was a company at the time that had Viking hats um, called Norse. Mm -hmm. And I just had this weird sneaking suspicion that they were just a bullshit company. Well, turns out they were, and they, they completely folded because of that. But they essentially were just running like run-of-the-mill, off-the-shelf honeypot systems, and they were like powering this, um, this this map showing all the live attacks on the internet. And they were telling their customers that they had built this like wild, sophisticated sensor network, and it was super secretive, and they couldn't tell you how it worked, and but look at this image and, and how impressive that is. And uh, at the time, it was really cool. Nobody had seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. 
But I had this question, you know, being the inquisitive guy that I was, and I, I was never like down on you. Like I was never a hater. That's not my, my, uh, my, my DNA. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I see somebody like purposely like, um, Maybe snake oil is, is not the right word, but they're they're like <laughs> why? They're, <laughs> yeah, they're they you know they're they're not being completely honest about what they're positioning to you, and you know that that struck me the wrong way. So w the way I decided to handle it was, hey, these guys are right down the street. I'm in Redwood City. They're in San Mateo. I'm just gonna go over there and you know build you know strike up a conversation. Maybe we can be partners. They were terrified of me. They literally heard I was coming to the office. Both the founders left. Uh, they had me meet with this business development person. They left the office because they didn't want to talk to me for whatever reason. Like this all kind of came out through like back channel and everything. But they were apparently the the, the um, CTO was just like the super paranoid guy. And I think they create something really cool and they could have continued to like develop and make it cool. But I think they just had kind of this like shady way that they were just hiding and positioning things. They just had this like gray hat way of doing everything and mm. the business, at least the, the technical guy. And they just kind of perpetuated this kind of shadiness. Right? right. But I think so much of what they did was so clever and cool with their marketing and the, the map and everything. And, I just think that, you know, with the right board, maybe they could have just like turned around and just been a little bit more honest to their customers. But, you know, at the end of the day, that nothing special about they were doing, they were running like off, you know, uh, off the shelf, like honeypot software. They're taking the IPs, they're putting in a database and they were selling it for a ton of money. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a problem. It's just when you tell somebody it's something it's not. And the way I found this out was that the map, the first version of the map that they put out, uh, had this like little scrolling log list on the bottom mm -hmm. and the logs were like a one-to-one -one match uh, with a really popular uh, piece of software called Dianeo, which was like a popular honeypot, open source honeypot software. Um, so I like wrote a tool that that basically copied all the logs that were coming from their map and just writing it so I could analyze that log and see, okay, is there anything else on this magical map that they're selling out of this database that I couldn't just run this open source on, you know, on a, a little server online for 10 bucks a month and get the same result. Mm -hmm. And, uh, turns out now nah, it was nothing, nothing special. So, um, you know, I wanted to discuss all these things and I was approaching it from like, I'm not an asshole. I'm not trying to like publicly out you. I just want to have a conversation and, you know, um, they were not open for that. They did not want to meet me. They kind of just gave me the cold shoulder and, um, so my response to that was, well, what if I open source a tool that gives you, that sets up the honeypots for you and <clears throat> gives you your own map. And instead of looking at, uh, the, the things popping up on someone else's honeypot, it means nothing to you, right? You could put these honeypots in your own network. And when something hits it, maybe that will have more meaning. <clears throat> because they're actually hitting your network and looking for things in your network. You know, I think that the, the you know, probability is that's more interesting information than just some random noise uh, on, on some random server. And so that was the idea. Um, it was two things. It was giving people the empowerment to easily set up and run their own, um, do it in a distributed way where you could put up multiple honeypots and it all comes back to a central database. And then I think what made the project really popular is that we we uh, gave them the the map, the mm. same map that, that yours have. 
right. and anybody could run it and it was free open source. And, you know, my thing was that in products, I always wanted to, to, to make something a real product. The challenging thing was a lot of open source. It's really hard to set up. And what if you could just click once and boom, it was up and running mm -hmm. and you instantly get the value. So everything that I made, even the very first tool at ArcSight um, was simple. You just press a button and it worked and minimal configuration and you know, put a little effort into that user experience, right? And the success of whatever project you're doing software wise is, is going to be like an order of a magnitude more successful because it's just so much easier to, to give value, time to value. Right. right. So uh, th that was it. And it became like a huge hit. It became, I think, the most popular honeypot software open source ever. Yeah, it was awesome. <clears throat> I remember I was working kind of a tangentially with the OWASP guys and they had a, a WAF, which is a little different, but it was like a WAF with a um, a proxy built into it. So all these bad guys would hit it as a proxy and then they bounce off of it. So they were actually being used for attacks, but they're seeing both the origin and what the attack is. And so they get to kind of correlate and do interesting stuff. I just remember just looking at this. There's like no good guys at all on this thing. Like no, <laughs> yeah. it's all bad traffic yeah. as opposed yeah. to, as opposed to, you know, I don't know hard to explain if you're not super familiar with web logs, but it's like attack, 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 like a hundred percent. Yeah. And then occasionally there'd be somebody who's just trying to like browse porn or whatever, you know, like, sure. so it's like, ah, I got to get rid of the porn here. Um, but I remember like, I don't know what exactly they were going to do with it. Like it, like we had all the logs, but like, what, are you going to turn this into a product? Cause it didn't really make sense to be part of OWASP. Like are you going to, deliver these logs to somebody who are you going to give it to, you know, sure. like, yeah, it's kind I've, of a weird I've project. Around. Yeah. I, I built something like that internally. Um, because when you're building cybersecurity software, sometimes you need traffic to test it out. And if it's bad traffic, even better. So we figured out if you built a web proxy, you publish that proxy on a list of free public proxies. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think we stitched it up to like a tour exit node. So it randomized the traffic as it was going out. And yeah. um, we just saw all kinds of crazy stuff. But it was basically just like a instant microscope into the internet. Yeah. Doing that. Yeah, it really is. And as long as you don't stop them from doing whatever bad thing they're going to do, they're going to yeah. keep using you because, yeah. and reasonably performant, you know, it was reasonably mm -hmm. quick, uh, up to uptime and performance, those two things and everything else. They don't give a crap about who cares if you're watching me steal a bunch of credit cards, sure. you're not going to stop me. So yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> They're going through a VPN anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, okay. So how was that? Um, like, did you exit that company? Like, how did that go? Yeah. Uh, oh boy. That was a, that was a fun one. So I, it was a rocket ship of a company. So we were at the time, I think one of the fastest growing, uh, startups period at, at the time of that year, uh, we got to like zero to 10 million ARR and I think a year and, and we're just zero to what now flying 10 million ARR. So like wow. in a startup, that's like a big, that's uh, a big hurdle. deal. Yeah. yeah. That's a big hurdle, especially that quickly. Yeah. And I think it was the, this whole, we had built a user base with the, the open source. And, um, so we were calling on those clients and once you have a foot in the door, it's so much easier. Sure. And, and we already had a good product out there and, and it was just like, okay, well, well and also, you want to make this better. Yeah, and also the offers support because I'm sure they're mm -hmm. like they yeah, just don't exactly. want to deal with support issues. Exactly. It's a big deal for enterprises. So it was a rocket ship. Um, we 
you know, had this opportunity where one of the board members uh, was retired, the founder of ArcSight. Um, he basically was going to go work for another company at the time. We we're like, you know, should we, you know, bring this guy in and really kind of uh, blow up our profile as a company by having this like guy with this amazing tracker come in the company? Yeah, it's an awesome idea. So I reached out uh, to him. Do you want to come in? And um, he was like, well, you know, Greg, uh, you already did the CTO founder thing. I think maybe if I were to do that again, I'd want to be CEO. So that kind of put me in like a very interesting uh, decision-making process. Like, okay, it's my first company, everything's going really well. Um, but I want to have, you know, kind of this mentality and open-mindedness that, you know, it's about the company. It's not about me. Uh, I want to make the best decision for a long-term for the success of the company. You know, granted, I'm majority owner of the stock at this point. So it was a really difficult decision. Uh, I had to go through at that time, you know, at a young age, very first company. And uh, ultimately I landed on hiring him and replacing myself as, as CEO. And um, do, you, do you look back on that with any regret or are you have you did? Well, it? what happened next? So <laughs> I, I stayed on as CTO and we just did not get along. And, it, you know, smart guy. I won't say anything about him. It's just, we were not a fit to work together. I had a very different leadership style. Um, he was, uh, very much a technology product leader guy and, uh, he took the CEO job, but that was kind of his comfort area. So it didn't really leave any room for me, uh, in the company cause he wanted to kind of own both cause that was his comfort area. And so I was supposed to stay on and run product and technology and just didn't end up working out that way. So we got loggerheads very, very quickly. And once you give, uh, give up the, the keys, once you give up the steering wheel of the company and you give up the CEO role willingly, there's no going back on that, you know? So it ultimately ended up, it was like him or me. And basically it was me. So I got the boot the, he went to the board and he was like, Hey, Greg and I cannot you know, staying in this company together, this is going to be a huge problem. We are not getting along at all. So yeah, the board voted me out and, uh, it was a pretty, uh, traumatic experience for me. So wow. yeah, to see your, your baby and have to, to, to kind of let go completely, be completely separated and not my choice. I was trying to make it work. So that was a very difficult, uh, process. Unfortunately, not a very uncommon one in Silicon Valley. I remember I, I immediately called the lawyer and I was like, dude, this is crazy. I didn't want to leave. What's going on here? And he's like, you're the third founder I talked to today that got booted out of their company against their will. It's like, this is unfortunately part of the game. And uh, I remember, you know, at the time, you know, uh, they, the board was like, you know, we're going to make you rich in this moment. We're going to let you sell some of your shares. And, um, you know, you're young, you know, you'll bounce back. You'll be fine. And I just, at the time I was like, that is the most cold blooded thing. You guys are heartless. Screw you. And, uh, you know, six months later I was like, okay, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was just like, I'm going to start a new company. That's, that's what I did. But, uh, you know, it was tough. It was tough at the time. Yeah. But you still had an exit. You had an exit. You got out of that. Um, yeah, they let me take money off the table when they gave me the boot. Yeah, so uh, yeah, they, nice I got to keep. I got to keep prize. the majority of my chunk is is still in there, and um, you know that company is still rocking and rolling and and doing really good. And you know, I will give him. Um, 
he, he actually got the boot as CEO too. So they have a new CEO now and uh, the company's doing really well. Um, I, I think that, uh, he was very good to technology, did a really good job there. I don't think he was the best at kind of blowing up the brand and making it big and expanding the company as fast as everybody would have liked. So the company's been around 10 years now, amazing technology under this new CEO. I feel very hopeful that, uh, the, of the future is bright. Gotcha. Yeah. So what was next? What'd you do? Uh, next I bounced back pretty quick. I took six months off. I thought that I was going to, um, you know, take more time off. This is right around when I met you. Probably so. Yeah. This was like, uh, 2016, I think. Uh, and, uh, I started, uh, my, my next company was called Jask. Uh, and the idea there was how do we create automation using machine learning, AI, we're kind of early to the idea, but we're like, we're going to figure it out, uh, to automate the level one sock analyst. So the guys I was talking about before, they were sitting in there scrolling through those alerts. How do we automate that? This guy. (laughs) (laughs) I had that job too. (laughs) When when they call you a sock monkey, that's when Uh you know, okay, we got to automate this job. That's right. I did not have that job for very long. Uh, I did not like it. was not very good at it. Nobody likes it. Well, I just wasn't very good at it. There was other people who were better at it. I didn't really understand logs back then, so... It would be running in the background. I'd be looking over every once in a while, but really I just was there to visit everybody else in the room. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cool room. Yeah, good go do other things. It was a cool room. Overly lit, I remember. I was like, ah, oh, there's so much light in this They're room. It's supposed to be dark. No, 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 no. This was like like eight times more light than this, just like no, way they, over lit. They got the sock wrong. Yeah, they did get it wrong. Although at night you could kind of turn it down, but they want to sell it. They want to be able to see it from the outside of the room, you know, the night mirrored shift, glass. Baby. And yeah, that's right. Um, so you were early to AI. I mean, would you say that that went well? Um, yeah, it was awesome. I think that there was a lot of, um, kind of skeptic, you know, much deserved skepticism in the market. So if you were a cybersecurity company, I know, uh, silence at the at the same time was using AI very aggressively, and I don't know if it was their fault specifically. I think a lot of companies were doing this. I think AI at the time, probably still to this day, is used interchangeably with machine learning, and and a lot of people or purists are really you know into that space. They may take issue with that, um, but sure. at the end of the day, uh, I think people have generally softened, especially since you know how far it's come with the, the LLMs and everything. Certainly faster to type. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But at the first it was like, yeah, it's AI's bullshit, you know. Maybe you're using machine learning. And I think that we were on the cusp of then, machine learning becoming. And then way if you're using powerful. machine learning, you're using if statements, you know, like <laughs> yeah, but also yeah. like it's yeah. still easier to write. <laughs> sure, sure, hundred percent. And what we found through through our journey of building early AI uh is that um, you know, Wow, it was a huge learning lesson for me. I got to really learn about, you know, what, what works and what doesn't work. And um, also that um, machine learning is, is a tool and it's not the tool for solving every job, right? And that uh, there is a, uh, a huge purpose for human uh, labels, right? And uh, what is a, a rule that you write uh, is a human label right? Do this. Uh, the if statement, right? Is very, uh, powerful. 
And uh, when mated in conjunction with machine learning, it becomes even more powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, that that's what we found out. And we felt like pioneers at the time uh, that if you took anomalies and you took threat intelligence and you took um, like rules and signatures and you melded them all together, you didn't alert on any one of those things, but you alerted on the combination of them happening. So there's uh, an example I use that, okay, you want to know if there's a real fire in the building that's worth, you know, issuing the, uh, the uh, fire truck from the fire station, or do you want to just go uh, send, you know, the handyman to go grab the fire extinguisher and run, run over there and check it out? Uh, so how do you make that decision? Well, uh, are you going to do call the fire station if one fire alarm goes off? Or are you going to wait till two, three, four go off in the building? And uh, that was essentially, uh, you know, a very general way to describe what's happening there. If you see a threat intel hit, if you so see a your fusion of all these sensors, yeah, you fuse all those sensors together, and it becomes really powerful because each of those sensors uh, is taking like a different uh, view of uh, of what's going on, and it creates a richer story. And we found that a really powerful combination. That was kind of the the essence of how the technology worked, and it was unbelievably powerful. We are applying that same techniques of melding the Intel, the the human rules base, and the machine learning anomaly detection. Uh, and our products at Ghost, uh, because the concept is really powerful, right? And they're using that in a lot of different areas. They're even using those concepts in medicine where they're using like multi-models and uh, a fusion of uh, you know, human uh, labeled rules and correlation with, with uh, machine learning and anomaly detection and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what happened with JASK? You uh, exited that? Yeah, we, um, we got to, uh, we had some, an, an amazing run. Uh, we decided that we were going to have to take a lot more capital uh, to grow the company to be something bigger. We were bolting, we started off, we were like bolting onto Sims. Right. And trying to automate the sock analyst. We we're like, well, if we're really going to be a standalone company with the amount of money we raised, we raised like $50 million. We had some big VCs like Kleiner Perkins in the round. And these guys want billion dollar exits. So we're looking at this. We're like, how do we turn this into a billion dollars company? We're going to have to compete with the Sims. So we have to do all the Sim like things. We started down that road. We realized that it's going to be very capital intensive and it's going to take a long time. We have to do search and log and all the basic stuff. It's going to take, you know, a lot more money. we got to go raise more money. It's going to take another five to 10 years. And in that process of, of raising money and trying to figure out, you know, what was the next leg of the journey to, to go be a big billion dollar company, uh, we met the team at Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic was kind of opposite on that journey. They had built the search and the log and the SIM and the cloud, uh, but they were lacking that security analytics uh, component. So it was really like a match made in heaven when he's one plus one equals three kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, the founder of Sumo um, also worked with me at ArcSight. So we had yeah. this like, you know, previous uh, deep in bonds and uh, he actually, a uh, great guy, Christian uh, B. Danny lives here in, uh, in Austin now. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we met uh, Black Hat. I'm telling the story, tell him that we're raising around and this is the journey we're going on. And, and uh, it just kind of dawned on us that, you know, maybe we should take a look at, is this where, you know, we, we should uh, join forces and make something happen. And I think the deal that made that work for us is that they had filed or were about to follow their S1 to, to go public. And I said, well, you know what? It was a great deal where 
um, we can do a deal where we take stock, we go on this ride with them, and, and uh, this, this ends up being a lot bigger thing. And that's what we did. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, that's a so good great, success story. Great outcome how, for everybody. How long did that uh, take soup to nuts? Uh, we sold the company like 20, November 2019. So and three then, years? And, oh, you mean when we started yeah. Jazz? Yeah. Yeah, it was about. 2016 to 2019? Yeah. Three, four years? It was about three, four years. Yeah, it was a fast one. That's a fast one. Yeah, no intention of it being fast. It just uh, yeah. turned out that way. You know. Yeah. Well, it's always nice. Yeah. You're on to the next, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you, you really, people ask, like, why do you start these companies? I think that the intent is to create some innovation that actually makes a dent and, um, you know, has some value. And you want to see it get some level of adoption um, before you become in some bigger thing. And this is um, something I believe very much. And then what I learned through the process of, of, um, you know, selling the company to Sumo Logic was that sometimes you can realize that vision under somebody else's umbrella. And that's exactly what happened. Once Sumo bought us, really the software took out, took off like wildfire. We had Home Depot. We had some really big customers and big deals that we closed. And, um, you know, the team was very proud to have their software kind of be in the backbone of, cybersecurity for, for such a large organizations. Hmm. All right. So tell me about ghost the newest, big, uh, big thing here. Yeah. So did, did, you know, stayed on sumo for the, uh, uh, the two years, uh, after you sell your company, they give you the, <laughs> the, 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 the golden handcuffs, right? I had a great, great time being a public company executive, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, a great, great team over there. Uh, nothing bad to say there. They're great people. Yeah. But it's always, uh, it's tough. It's, it's tough. They knew. Uh, yeah. And they, they gave me a lot of leeway. They knew I was an entrepreneur and they knew, they knew once the two, two years were out the door. So they were very gracious with me. Right. Right. Yeah. Very gracious with me. And, uh, anyway, so, um, I, I was just itching to, to do something else. We looked at, at, um, you know, what is going to be a big problem, not today. Um, but like for the next, like, 10 years, 20 years, you know, it's a big meeting, meeting problem to attack. And, um, we were looking primarily only at cloud cause you know, that's where the hockey puck is moving. And, uh, in a way cloud has really simplified, uh, the cybersecurity problem quite a bit, right? Because all of or the, the things that are in the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So let's just assume everything's there. <laughs> but, but the good thing about the cloud is that you have Google, you have Microsoft uh, to, to do a lot of the security for you. Right. So it simplifies the, the problem a lot and it creates other problems. Right. So um, it simplifies in a way that what's important now. So you have the, the, the users, that's their identity, their privileges, their access. You have the data itself, and that's the, 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 the privacy of the data, the sovereignty of the data, the, uh, protecting it, encrypting it. And you have the applications. And, and really, those are the three things that, that matter in a cloud world, right? It just simplifies everything. Google magically takes care of everything else. Of course, there's the configuration of the cloud and oh, you know, what you install and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's a lot more simple. Uh, so we're looking and deep diving in, in those three kind of problem areas, picking apart, and there's lots of opportunity there, but a lot of people working in those problem sets, right? We looked at the application and what we saw, and, you know, you, you spent a lot of time in this space. What we saw is that the state of the art is really old, right? We have, you know, old tools and techniques and, and ways of doing things that were born in the data center times, right? And they're still trying to be applied to the, the cloud world. And, um, 
you know, there's so much opportunity to kind of reboot that kind of what happened with, you know, old antivirus and got rebooted by the likes of CrowdStrike and Sentinel One and others. Yeah. Um, you know, we believe there's a huge opportunity to kind of completely build a new stack from the ground up that knows about cloud first and foremost. But if an app is running in the cloud, it's probably a modern app, right? It's probably using some cloudy things like, um, you know, serverless or other cloud primitives. Uh, it, it's probably built on microservices architecture. It's probably heavily uh, built on APIs, right? It's probably maybe uses some kind of uh, orchestration uh, container system like Kubernetes. Sing- single page apps, a lot of those. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of them. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, they look very different and we gotta, we gotta have technology knows how to protect them. So, um, you know, ghost was built with that mission in mind and a really smart team, you know, with a, a deep background, my co-founders, uh, Eric and Josh are running the, the technology vision. And, um, you know, I get to get to focus on being a CEO this time, less, a, less a technology guy. Cause I have these powerhouses on the team and I just trust them completely. That's great. Yeah. Are they all based here in Austin? No. Uh, Josh is in uh, D.C. area, okay. Northern Virginia, and Eric is in uh, Southern California. Gotcha. Um, so, okay, we talked a little bit about the, the concept here, but um, microservices and APIs, are those are a absolute mess for testing purposes. So how do you, what's sort of the 50,000 foot view of how you do that. Absolutely. Well, you know, so you look at what is the state of the art, what's out there before uh, when you're trying to figure out what the gaps are, what, what, what are companies dealing with? So we went and talked to tons and tons of them. We talked to the developer side, we talked to the security side. And uh, first thing we started with is, like, do you know um, what you have out there? Like, If you were to like take a company like John Deere, for example, I'm not a customer of ours, but I just randomly love using them as an example because it's like a <laughs> company that is just this idea of like a company has been around this old institution in America, uh-huh, uh-huh. but, but they actually, their, their tractors are connected to, uh, you know, 5g now and they're updating, uh, over the air to some APIs in the cloud. Right. Mm-hmm. So a very modern old school farm equipment company that has a very high tech. Right? So I love using them as an example of like yeah. what a, what a new, you know, company is dealing with all these modern security challenges are. And I, by the way, if you listen to this, John Deere, we'd love to for you to be a customer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you the R snake, uh, 20% so, um, <laughs> hashtag R snake at checkout. <laughs> but, um, told you I was shameless. Uh, so somebody's uh, going to try that. And like, we don't even have this, uh, how they inject this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, really the idea is that I know you were joking, they, but they have, can you really go to a website and check out? Is it is, is no, that easy? We don't have a check. You have an right, you have right. an enterprise sales model. Yeah, we have okay. All right. <laughs> to present a token to your sales guy. Yeah, just <laughs> drop our snake in conversation. We'll give you a big discount. All my work. Uh, so um, so so yeah, I mean <clears throat> these organizations, they're moving in the cloud. If, if not, if everything they're doing that's new is definitely a cloud-based app, right? And what have these organizations used in the past? They've probably bought some web application firewalls from companies like Imperva. They probably um, have source code scanning that happens somewhere in their software development lifecycle. 
they may have some you know, vulnerability testing uh, tools like uh, Tenable or, or um, Qualys that are running on that app when it's installed. It's mainly looking for like CVEs, right? Like checking the um, server banners. Is this a vulnerable piece of software? Like pretty old school stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, that's the that's the state of the art. So uh, what do we think was our version for what's needed? And uh, really, it's kind of, um, you know, more visibility. So uh, being able to see into the application layer traffic in some instances, the cloud luckily gives you a bunch of tools and techniques to be able to get close to the data and, and uh, you know, create some of those visibility pipelines that you can start to do some detection, start to do some visibility awareness. So we start so is this like S bomb or is uh, that sort of visibility or what do you, yeah, what do you sure. Mean? I mean, um, you know, we are not focused on that, uh, at, at ghost, but that's certainly something that we can I, do. I, I wasn't sure what you meant. What do you mean by visibility? Yeah. Visibility just into, um, what, what the app sees, right? So the, the prior ways of doing it traditionally for threat detection, uh, was, uh, was a web app firewall and a web app firewall usually worked as a proxy or some type of inline, um, thing that would look at each request and would filter using regex looking for known bad things and then it would try to like maybe stop it uh, in line the the issues with that are, are uh, some where do I start so being in line you're a single point of failure in uh, kind of a web cloud scale app it's, it's just not a technology that don't even support it yeah, in a lot of cases they don't. Um, so they have some real high performance ones that some of the CDN providers have some some WAF like features like Cloudflare that have done it at such a high performance that they can do that. Um, but then you get into okay, so how effective is this? So I'm blocking at the edge based on a regex or an IP, and you have just these massive false positives. You have uh, all these problems with that model. And um, nothing wrong with a rule or a regex uh, when you know what you're looking for. Um, but, you know, you have to deal with the false positive problems because attackers are like, okay, well, this is what they're looking for. I'm just going to slightly change this a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how do you detect something that you don't know what to look for? So that, that's a, a whole other problem set, right? So is it more on the protection side or more on the identifying yeah, vulnerabilities? So, so Ghost is really kind of like a next evolution of what is threat detection um, for apps running in the cloud without being in line, um, without having some of the same kind of um, fallacies of rudimentary WAF. So kind of think of this as like the next evolution of, of a WAF technology a lot of people are like oh you guys api security yeah yes and no uh we think that you know there's there's this kind of broader um emerging category right now in the cloud space that is just like cloud application you know threat detection and response so do you do you somehow hook the serverless compute or so we we do not uh install into uh any of the app servers of the compute. Uh, right now we have two ways of deploying and getting our visibility to be able to um, both kind of do behavioral profiling for anomaly detection and also, you know, looking for known stuff, which is kind of like a derivative of the, the, the regex style, as well as, you know, any intelligence that we are able to glean through our network and our customers. And we kind of use all that in this multimodal approach, uh, to be able to find what is, what is bad or anomalous and bubble that up to, to people. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, so we do that by um, either connecting into um, your, your actual network stream, the application uh, stream uh, across the wire in its unencrypted form um, with uh, the VPC mirroring in, in your cloud provider. Mm-hmm. So we actually get a copy of the traffic. This all happens and analyzed in the customer's environment and um, allows them to see the application layer traffic and build a baseline of the APIs, the apps, what does normal look like, what does abnormal look like. And um, Interesting. Yeah, and from there we can do some really cool things. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, and um, if you're running Kubernetes, then we we then do have something that, that plugs in as a kernel-level module, essentially, to, to Kubernetes that gives that visibility. Cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I also saw you published maybe a couple months back, uh, something called Reaper. Yeah. So, so I have, I have a a weird habit apparently of creating open source projects that have nothing to do with, with, uh, our project. Yeah. I mean, it really doesn't sound like it has (laughs) anything to do with this. Yeah. This is the second time, uh, we've done this, but uh, it's a pretty complicated, I mean, this must've taken some time. And and this one wasn't my idea. This was a, you know, really uh, smart engineer in our company that, that really created this cool tool internally really i think just to kind of help him uh testing and essentially um it's like a newer version of a dynamic uh you know application security testing tool like a burp suite i was gonna say it reminds me of burp suite if i could run multiple instances of burp suite at the same time yeah if that makes sense like if i could wire them somehow up to communicate to each other yeah i want to run this type of attack then this type of attack then this type of attack then i want to check if this thing is true or not then do something else yeah the tool is called reaper it's on github a free open source it's super cool and um you know we'll probably put some more effort and love into it we're hoping the community will as well but um what's it written in i'm curious it's go so it's like very modern and and uh you know, an easy tool to use. It's not like a 10 year old Java blob of, right. of annoyingness. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's sweet to the point, uh, very effective. And, um, you know, you can just automate fuzzing things and click of a button. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, low code, no code, fully automated. Right. I mean, one of, one of my biggest beefs back when I was doing testing was you could never tell if you're logged in or not. So you'd have to do a bunch of extra work just to like try to detect it and like, sure. It just never worked. I ended up having to code my own thing on the side of Burp all the time yeah. just to uh, do basic checks to make sure I was still logged in with the credential that it was using or whatever. And then if it failed, then please let me know and I'll stop Burp Suite or whatever. It seems like it it fully, auto- well, I wouldn't automate because you still have to use some human intervention, but it fully routinizes the process of doing these, what I would call like the boring checks that need to be done to get the interesting tests done. First of all, the, the, the team at ghosts are just phenomenal set of, of engineers and threat researchers. And they just really wanted to uh, give a little love to the industry. I think when they created this and released this tool, they were like, Hey, this burp thing is it's fine, but nobody's kind of challenged the status quo. It's been, <laughs> like a decade of using this clunky old tool that that kind of does a lot but doesn't do a lot too right yeah and um so that was their their attempt at like let's create some fresh modern cool that just makes life easier and more pleasant and um see what happens and so they, they, they i mean those burp guys they make plenty of cash i mean that seems like a product it's just is that right are they a for-profit company oh yeah 
I don't know. Oh yeah, they're it. they're actually pretty big. Uh, there's only a handful of companies out there that are selling kind of similar ish tools, and they're yeah. doing pretty well. Yeah, uh, well, but I think they I think the reason that they exist um, as as a for profit company and are doing well is because they're free offering them. Just to be fair. Yeah. So if you don't have a pretty decent user base, I wouldn't recommend going down that path, but sure. they do pretty, pretty well. Well, that's awesome. I think there's a need for it. And we, by the way, you know, maybe sound like I'm, I'm dissing them and, um, there's, you know, a lot to be desired about their software, I think. And I this mean, is just what we hear from the community. But at the I end mean, of I the day, to, I used to message Duffit all the time, the yeah. CEO over there and like, or was, I don't know if he still is or not. But uh, there's always things that could be improved with Burp, so yeah. it wouldn't be surprising. And this is, I think, to me, this level, level it up, have some competition in the market, not because no, we I, we want to, you know, I, I hurt think, your business model. We I, just want better I th- tools. I think the thing that you guys don't have, or at least that I saw in the in the online demo, was uh, as there's like a mountain of plugins that you can put into Burp, but yeah. like that's like a small feature actually it's just like a plug-in architecture and then people start writing for it and then it's becoming a thing and mm-hmm. everyone knows it exists and yeah I, I feel like that's just a matter of uh getting it in enough like uh manual penetration testers hands and then they'll go oh, you know, yeah that's for just sure, for just, sure it makes my life a lot easier yeah my i've got two buddies that, that have great companies uh casey at bug crowd yeah and, uh, he was on the podcast oh awesome yeah yeah, and Jay at Cynac, and I, I reached out to those guys. Give us your teams. and They're, they're playing with it. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they'll cede that to their communities. They have an amazing community. Yeah, well, I should I should post it as well. Now I think about it. <clears throat> that would be awesome. All right, so you mentioned AI a little bit. Um, where And you said it was kind of changing the industry and you wouldn't get into security because of AI or, or a minimum a fusion of it. Where, so where is uh, AI going from your perspective? Where is... Uh, where should people be focused on their, their energies? I think it's really exciting. I think for a young person, I think they should be spending a lot of time on it. I think if you are um, developing any kind of new technology company, you need to have at the very least a strategy uh, for AI and how you're going to learn how that's going to affect your business now and in the future and how you can uh, incorporate and be ready to incorporate it, right? So you don't get uh, squashed and left behind, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's, it's still early days. I think everybody realizes that, uh, it's going to be a really exciting ride with a lot to come. And you know, I started off very skeptical, right. Even through the, all the chat GPT stuff and I dove in and, um, but what I did see was that, uh, the, the tech industry as a whole getting reinvigorated and re-excited about technology again. Yeah. And that's been very exciting. Even I'm, myself. I've noticed that too. Like old timers coming out of retirement just to like play with it. And I'm like, well, you're retired. What are you doing? And like, and they're like, oh, but this is so interesting. And it is just jumping back in. So it is. it's fascinating. I don't, I don't, uh, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if we saw a rash of security startups entirely based on, uh, intelligent uses of UI uh, yeah. of AI rather, um, with, you know, a, a slick, nice UI on the top of it because I mean, these, these people are all experts and they've already done it and they have yeah. cash and they can go make it happen. And yeah, um, that's right. I just hope they uh, don't have prompt injection all over the place. And <laughs> that's right. Well, a uh, local company hidden layer that I'm an advisor for uh-huh. that they're doing the AI for security for AI uh, models. Uh-huh. So going to hopefully yeah, well, solve some of those problems. Maybe get them on the podcast. That sounds interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so you're also doing security investing as well. That's right. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, two, two years I was at, uh, Sumo Logic and, um, you know, they bring your, your, you were a CEO, you get hired on your job after an acquisition is usually a couple of things. One is to uh, keep the continuity of the team, keep the continuity of the customers and, and ensure that the integration of the two companies happens successfully. So this is really your job, right? And uh, I think I, I felt like I fulfilled that in the first six months or so, you know, like the dust settled, like whoever was going to leave left, uh, whoever's staying, staying. Customers seem to be happy. They're not going anywhere. We're growing and we're integrating the technologies, right? We've got projects going successfully. So I was like, great. So what do I do now? <laughs> I don't really have anything else to do. So uh, I started investing. Uh, really, it was just this idea of how do I pay it back? It started off as kind of being an advisor to only first-time founders. Uh, a lot of them were in the cyber space. Uh, it then kind of bled outside of cyber, just tech in general. Uh, some even non-tech, um, and you know they could be anywhere. It helped if they were nearby. Um, so I did a lot of deals in the Austin area. Mm -hmm. Austin has become um, as exciting um, place to do a startup, challenging Silicon Valley, uh, especially now post COVID. I think that you can. Yeah, I, I, there, I, there's no limitation to the funding you can get here, and in fact, it may even be easier to yeah, find VC funding. I, I feel like this has surpassed the Bay Area. Um, Maybe not like Israel, for instance, in yeah. terms of cybersecurity startups, but sure, at minimum on par. Well, I'm um, just talking about any startup. No, just no, I, access that, to, to that, to that is true capital. too. But but uh, there's a lot of security startups well, here. Cyber, yeah, for sure, a hundred percent agree. I feel like Austin has become you know a, a mecca for that. So many founders, so much talent, and growing. Like I've her new security pop up, uh, new company pop up like almost daily now. It's like awesome. I can't keep track of all these things. Can't either. Um, which is a good problem to have. That just means there's just more and more talent moving in. But, um, so what what do you think is the new like hotness in security? Like where if you were gonna be putting bets down. Yeah. So I, I didn't start it to, to as a professional investor to make money, but what I found when I was helping these guys out and if I really liked them, I thought, why not just put more skin in the game and get more involved, put my own money into it, uh, show of support, uh, to the founders. And, um, I looked back and I'm like, man, I've done like 25 of these. Uh, now I'm kind of brushing up on, on 30 deals that I've done. And, um, then, then you realize like, okay, you're kind of a VC at this point. You, you know, are you're doing your family a family of office. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, um, a lot of times I'm doing it, uh, and then turning around, helping them meet my VC community and network and, and help them get investments. And it's funny when I first started doing it, I thought that they'd want kind of help and, and guidance on product and strategy, marketing, what have you, technology almost a hundred percent of the time they won't help raising money, um, with the, with the VC community. Gotcha. And I realized that, you know, I was pretty good at that. And, um, that's where Tom had helped me out a lot. And, um, so I, I spent a lot of time paying it back, helping them figure out, okay, you know, having a good pitch deck is one thing. Um, but there's so much more to the process and, uh, understanding how to do that well is a mix of art and science. You know, you gotta learn the process. So what is a, what does a good security investment look like uh, from your perspective? Like what's a company that's interesting? Um, 
look like from your perspective? Well, it, it usually depends if we're talking about the early stage. Most of the deals I do are early stage, like seed, seed series A. Um, and that's like a hard fought battleground. That's where everybody wants to be these days. Uh, get in early. Um, most VC firms are doing earlier deals. When you're doing a company that early, there is a lot of rotation on who is the founders and what is their kind of makeup and DNA and personality. Are they coachable? Um, are they too technical? If they are, do they have the right kind of team around them that can do some of the business side, like recruiting talent and sales? Um, do they have some of those skill sets? Right? Mm -hmm. Are they able to, uh, to to market and sell this whatever they built, this widget, this technology, this idea? Um, so a lot of it is vetting down to the founder and um, finding the right people. They're investing in the people ultimately uh, at that early stage. And then of course, you know, the feasibility of the idea is there uh, a go-to-market strategy attached to it? Right? Can this actually be a business? Can you sell it? Um, a lot of them. Open source is, is kind of a popular model now. Mm -hmm. So how do you then turn that into a successful business if it's something that you're giving away for free? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not easy. Yeah. So what would you say would be like good sort of just neutrally good advice for up and coming CEOs like who want to raise money, have a successful company in the security industry? Like, what would you say? I've seen a lot and I do feel like I'm in a good position to give some of this advice. And what I would tell you is, um, you know, leave your, your using your ego can actually be a powerful tool to drive you to being very successful. Um, but don't let it get in the way of your success. So if you are not the right guy um, to be the face of your company, lead the sales of your company, um, go recruit the, the investments. If that's not where you drive your, your passion, if that's not what you're the best at, if you're the best at the technology and being a technologist and that's where you have the most fun, then just be the technologist and, and live comfortably in that. The CEO is obviously sounds very exciting and awesome. And maybe that is what you want to do. Um, but don't let your ego make that decision for you. Find if, if you are honestly not the best salesperson and that's not something that you have comfort in and, you know, people and relationships and, and all that is, is not your strong suite, then, then find somebody to partner with and bring them in and, and do it together. Right. Or I could not agree. Yeah. More. And I think a lot of founders, unfortunately, um, struggle with that early on and they get replaced. Um, they, they get to series A, series B, and they either get replaced in a fun way or a not so fun way. And that's, that's never nice. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I personally, I've probably closed my, just by myself about a hundred enterprise sales deals over my career. And, um, I hate it. You know, it's not a matter of not being able to do it. I just hate it. I yeah. hate having a schmooze and, and it's not like I'm over promising, but you know, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just this smarmy thing where you're like transactional and just don't like it at all. And the best sales guys I know, they, they either don't notice that they're doing it or don't care that they're doing it or something. And, mm -hmm. um, or they just actually don't see it that way at all. They like yeah. somehow magically have a totally different perspective on it, which I just cannot personally adopt. But, um, but when I was starting bit discovery, I'm like, 
or, you know, it was back then it was outside Intel. And I'm like, I gotta, uh, I gotta get out of the sales role, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but it's really important in the beginning, I think for founders to, to take ownership of that sales role. And that's another thing I've seen. Uh, I'll give some advice is, um, you know, it's tough for a technical founder to come in, build a product, take the CEO role and expect, I'm just going to hire a sales guy. And everything's going to work itself out. And no, they, I, no, I I brought in a CEO. I brought Jer- Jeremiah. Yeah, that was smart. Move. <laughs> but but a lot of these guys will burn through like three or four sales leaders, and yeah. they're like, "What's not working here?" Like, well, you got to learn how to sell it yourself. Nobody's going to bring the passion, the dedication. What an early customer needs to hear from an early team mm-hmm. is that conviction. And hired help can't really bring that same level of passion. Yeah, I would I would say another caveat to that is um, if you're going to bring in a, a sales guy, if you're going to do that, which I wouldn't recommend necessarily, but yeah. if you're going to do I think it, I'm a founder. Yeah, but well, I would say make sure that they're already in the industry. Yeah, make sure 100%. that they already know a lot of people already, because if you're basically spending all your time teaching them product and teaching them who all the customers are and getting them introduced sure. to everybody and like you might as well just do it yourself. You're yeah. not, you're not saving anything at that point. That's right. Um, and if anything, they'll get frustrated. It's going to take them six months minimum to meet anybody interesting and have any kind of rapport. And that's right. That's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work at all. That's right. Um, I keep, I keep making this mistake thinking like, Oh, this time will be different. It's not, it's never different. <laughs> no, you really do have to hire people who know what they're doing already. Um, yeah. That, that, that is absolutely the secret, uh, certainly been the secret of my success is, you know, hire people that know what they're doing. They're better than you, smarter at you at what they do and get the hell out of their way, number one, and s- support them any way you can. Mm-hmm. And if you do that and you recruit the best possible talent possible, then you cannot fail. Okay. Almost. So <laughs> there's plenty of ways to fail. Um, so I was talking with uh, one VC about this, and he said something like, "There's 170 OSN companies right now, approximately, uh-huh. um, which means there's a lot of dumb money in information security right now because yeah. there's you might need like 10 or something because they're all doing slightly different versions. Sure. You know, they have they're touching different you know feeds or something, but 170. That's yeah. That that means there's something." wrong with the way the investors are looking at the market. So my question is, what does the market need? Well, it needs a correction and there doesn't need to be so many companies (laughs) and that's happening, thankfully, right? Zero interest rate policy. There was just money was too cheap and, you know, the floodgates were open and you could just say, I want to start a cybersecurity company. You're almost guaranteed a, 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 a seed check. So too many companies, um, I'm sure they're all great ideas, but they didn't all deserve to be companies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that will get corrected, right? And separate the wheat from the chaff, right? Uh, Much needed correction. And I think that, um, you know, investors are going to pull back and get much more, and they already have, by the way, uh, much more rigorous on which deals they will do uh, and which deals they will continue to fund. So a lot of companies will just fail and some of them are already failing. And I think cyber was, you know, one of the most overfunded uh, of any of the sectors. And I think it's going to have, um, well, 
you know, the, the other argument is, is cyber is recession proof. So it, it will still continue to be a popular area of investment. I think there'll just be less deals done. So big deals will continue to be done on great teams and great ideas. It'll just be a lot harder. So the, the amount of companies out there will be much smaller in the future and, and, and should be. Gotcha. Well, um, why don't we talk about where people can find you and find out more information about what you're working on? Yeah, we we would love to talk to you guys. We're ghost.security is uh, our website. And um, we are a very early company. We've got, um, you know, 20, I think today, 21 employees and um, just a, a handful of customers, amazing customers that have entrusted us on this journey. And um, we're now out there starting to, uh, to, to, to grow. So we'd love to, to meet and talk to more. And uh, we're always hiring talent. Um, so that's the other uh, plug I like to make. We're looking for incredible people on the next. What kind um, of, what kind journey. of uh, talent are you looking for? Uh, all, all of the above. So all we're, we're looking for talent on the, you know, engineering side, product management side, sales, security research. Uh, if you have a passion for really innovation, um, working on high performance teams, um, changing the status quo and security for, for apps and running in the cloud. And uh, you just want to work in a, in a, you know, a winning team with a great culture and, and uh, love not being afraid to break things and move fast, then uh, it might be the right home for you. Awesome. Great. And uh, where they find you? Uh, yeah, Greg uh, Martin at ghost.security. I'm Greg C. Martin on, uh, on Twitter or X. I think it's right? <laughs> sure not, not, not as active as, uh, as I could uh, be on there, but uh, feel free to uh, reach out and uh, lo- love to meet him. All right. Well, thanks for making this happen. I think we've, this is the third time we try to make this happen. We finally did it. So I I'm know. really, thanks for, uh, for sticking in it. Yeah, thanks for it happen. Me. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Thanks. Absolutely. <laughs>